Hello, welcome to episode four of CVA University. This is the educational component of Cardiovascular Associates of the Southeast in Birmingham, Alabama. We take you through educational topics regarding cardiology and how to best care for yourself. Today, we have Dr. Macy Smith on the podcast. Dr. Macy Smith is an electrophysiologist. He deals with AFib. September is AFib Awareness Month. This is September of 2020. And we wanted to get into AFib with Dr. Macy Smith. And we wanted to hear what his best practices are, get his take on AFib. And this is a uh, major problem in the lives of many Americans. And we wanted to know how to best deal with it. So sit tight, listen closely. We're going to get to our interview with Dr. Macy Smith of Cardiovascular Associates. So Dr. Smith, thank you for sitting down with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So Dr. Smith, it is AFib Awareness Month. Most people might not know that. Um, AFib is dealt with by your specific area of cardiology, which is electrophysiology. Am I right? Right. Yes, I'm an electrophysiologist. And so that's uh, a heart doctor that specializes specifically in disorders of the heart rhythm. Um, you know, the heart's as much of an electrical organ as it is a muscle. And so it's the electricity initiated by the heart that creates the uh, signal to tell it to beat. So okay. AFib, right? I've heard that. You hear it everywhere. What does AFib stand for? What does right. it mean? So AFib is atrial fibrillation. Uh, it's when the left upper chamber beats very fast and irregular. And that's a problem because it uh, you lose some of the uh, normal strength of the heartbeat. Normally the heart beats in a very synchronized, steady fashion where the upper chambers beat first. They push blood into the lower chambers and then they push blood out to the muscles and organs delivering the necessary nutrients and oxygen to the muscles and organs. And so in atrial fibrillation, that left upper chamber is beating so fast and irregular that it's more quivering or fibrillating, hence atrial fibrillation. And um, as a consequence of that and the uh, weakened contraction, people usually feel palpitations, heart racing, shortness of breath, dizziness. Uh, some people even pass out. So I, I've read some stats from the medical community. One that I have is one in four adults, 40 and up, will are at risk of developing AFib. Is that consistent kind of with what you see uh, in your practice? Yes, yes. And, and, and a little more specifics, uh, you know, about 70% of our AFib patients are from the range of 65 to 85. So, so, so that that specific age population is is where we see the majority of our patients but yes so um another stat i've seen is that it increases your risk for stroke by five times now why is that explain how those that afib and stroke kind of go together and are a terrible duo if you will so again you know when that left upper chamber is beating so fast and irregular you're you don't have the normal contractility of that left upper chamber and so blood isn't moving through the heart in the same efficient manner and, and there's little nooks and crannies in the heart and one specifically is called the left atrial appendage and that's a small little area where blood can pool um, we call it stasis where the blood's just kind of sitting there and uh, a clot can form and then that can dislodge and go to the brain 
So, so AFib is what kicks that clot out, or what can for some folks. Well, yes. Uh, so initially, it's because of the AFib that the blood is is sitting there and allowed to stagnate, if you will. And uh, because it's just sitting there, it can form a clot. And then, you know, once you have a clot, at, at any point, that clot could move. And uh, when it moves to the brain, uh, that's how we end up with a stroke. And that's bad news. Nobody wants that. Absolutely um, not. Another thing I've seen on that on that level is that half of patients believe that AFib is not a life-threatening condition. Um, talk about that. Are, are, are people aware of how dangerous this can be for their health? Um, so over the years, our, our feelings of how concerned we should be as a medical community um, over the uh, negative effects of atrial fibrillation has certainly changed. And so there was a time where we really didn't think much about it. We would put people on blood thinners and uh, weren't really aggressive at suppressing their atrial fibrillation as long as they were on a blood thinner. And what we've seen over um, the last decade with multiple studies is that the more aggressive you are in treating AFib and suppressing AFib, there are survival benefits, meaning, you know, it, um, you can reduce the risk of death if you're more aggressive at treating your AFib. So, um, you, you know, it's certainly a balance. Um, aggressive medical, uh, aggressive treatment of atrial fibrillation does make a difference. It does reduce the risk of strokes. It does reduce the risk of death. Um, so, um, I think, you know, one way to look at it is we can, you know, this can be more of a nuisance. Um, if it's uh, if it's treated very aggressively, but it certainly should be seen as something dangerous if it's not treated aggressively. So, um, so say I have AFib and I've been treated by an, a cardiologist, or I, I know I've had it for a long time. How, as an electrophysiologist, how do you treat it? What are the steps? Say a patient comes into your office with AFib, and I know there are different types, but walk me through the treatment types these days. So you brought up some great points, and so normally what we see is there is this sort of progression of stages that people go through in atrial fibrillation, and it's usually over about a four-year period. And so initially, people usually start out with very paroxysmal, you know, intermittent, infrequent atrial fibrillation. They, they may go a few years with these racing spells that they don't even know what it is. They go to the doctor, the doctor does an EKG and it's normal um, in the office or if they're if they go to the ER because it scares them bad enough usually the initial episodes are such short duration and infrequent that they're frequently missed so people can think that they have an anxiety problem a mitral valve prolapse problem for several years before you know finally they have an episode that lasts long enough for someone to catch either on an EKG, a heart monitor, or if they go to the ER. And again, this is sort of a progressive process where it's very infrequent. We call that paroxysmal and then transitioned into persistent when they stick in AFib for longer periods, say for seven days. And so this, you know, this is usually a, a sort of on a continuum where it's very infrequent and then progresses to where people can be stuck in it all the time. Um, that's usually about a four-year period. 
Um, there's usually about a two-year period between when people first start having AFib to when it starts happening very frequently. Um, the problem is, is as, as people progress, um, if you're not being aggressive with the treatment, um, they can rapidly get into the situation where they're stuck in the AFib all along. Now, it's very easy to treat this early on. Um, it's less stubborn at that point um, with medicines. And, and, and usually where I come in, um, uh, specifically in terms of procedures um, beyond medications, would be if someone's having frequent AFib despite aggressive medical therapy, that's when we would bring them to the what we call the electrophysiology lab, which is, again, just a fancy word for heart rhythm lab. Um, and do something called an ablation where we target the uh, areas of the heart in that left upper chamber that are electrically overactive and sort of um, deactivate those areas um, with ablation. So how do you find the target areas? What's the process of mapping that these days? So um, the mapping systems have gotten much more sophisticated over the last few years, and so uh, we've able to map and ablate now in, in a way where we do not use x-ray anymore. The mapping system has become incredibly... So, uh, so no radiation. Right. Okay. So, so in the old days, you know, the, the, we call them electroanatomic maps. So it's a map that's sort of giving you the geometry of the heart as well as the electrical data all in one. Uh, it's sort of like GPS for the heart. Totally the, mapping, the mapping systems weren't that great initially, and so we heavily relied on X-ray uh, radiation during those procedures. And as the maps have gotten uh, much better and the technology and software has gotten better and the mapping catheters have gotten better, We've basically been able to move away from using radiation at all because the maps seamlessly integrate with ultrasound that we're doing real time during the procedure. And so we actually get a much more detailed map um, with, with better information without radiation. But uh, specific to your question, so uh, typically with atrial fibrillation, it's that left upper chamber. We call it the left atrium, and there are four pulmonary veins. There are veins that, that are known to be the, the main triggers for atrial fibrillation when people first start having AFib. And so what we do is sort of map those veins, look at the electricity, and then just ablate around those veins. After that, we'll usually put them on a medicine uh, that's similar to adrenaline to look for any other uh, triggers um, around, you know, outside of the veins, sort of in between the veins. And that's, that's our approach for um, a, a mapping and ablating uh, atrial fibrillation. So somebody that comes to see you gets an ablation, has had like persistent AFib, how are they feeling post-ablation? Is it, is it a game changer for them? So it, it, it's amazing how differently um, when you talk to people they experience their atrial fibrillation. Some people will swear that they don't feel bad, and it's amazing what we can unconsciously compensate for because even folks who think that the atrial fibrillation isn't bothering them are amazed at how much better they feel and didn't realize how bad they felt until we get them feeling better. So for some people, every episode of atrial fibrillation is devastating to them, and so, um, you know, the ablation obviously is, uh, you know, a huge game changer for them. But again, even, even folks who think uh, they're not bothered by it didn't realize how fatigued or short of breath they were until, you know, you fix it and they, they're able to do things that they had unconsciously stopped doing because of how bad they felt. Right. So um, 
you know, in the spirit of AFib Awareness Month, it sounds like the main thing I've heard from you is early treatment, no matter what type of AFib you have, uh, so that it doesn't kind of get out of control, right? Yeah, early treatment is really huge. Again, as as you know, the ablation is the safest and most successful early on. As the disease progresses and people have more and more AFib, that stresses that left upper chamber. It enlarges and develops scar tissue, and then the ablation is uh, more difficult and uh, less successful. And so, you know, we want early aggressive treatment um, right off the bat, and to follow. Uh, folks closely to make sure that that their AFib is well treated. Um, w- as the AFib progresses beyond, uh, you know, making the ablation less successful, uh, the risk of stroke and uh, heart failure also go up as uh, people progress into the, you know, more stubborn uh, permanent phases of atrial fibrillation. All right, Dr. Smith. So I have AFib. I need an ablation. What is the recovery process like after an ablation? Like, when can I get back to life? Uh, how does that look after after you do your procedure? So normally you would come in the day of the procedure, and depending on what has what workup has happened before, you might have an ultrasound that morning before the ablation, and then um, you would you would have the ablation. Uh, typically, the, the ablation is um, my part specifically is is less than an hour. Um, it's certainly shorter um, if we're able to do you know do the ablation uh, earlier on in the process. Again, it's that's a shorter, safer uh, procedure. Now there is some setup time and recovery time afterwards, so that's not the full full time. Um, but specifically, you know, the ablation part is uh, typically less than an hour. Um, We've started a new pilot program at Berkwood, and uh, we have a new closure device. Um, uh, it's a little collagen plug for the vein. They've had that for people that have heart casts for the arteries. We now have one that we're using at Brookwood for the vein, and basically that's taken us from six to eight hours of bed rest to only two hours of bed rest, and we've been able to couple that with um, um, in folks where we we're treating the AFib earlier um, with the ablation um, with a little collagen plug. Uh, some folks were letting go home the same day. So, um, um, you know, that, that's another added benefit of treating this uh, before it gets gets uh, too far out of hand. Is uh, um, So early treatment can potentially mean same-day discharge after your procedure. Right. So, you know, you'll have your recovery, and, and by the time – you know, the anesthesia is worn off that, that most folks start to complain about, you know, their back hurting from laying there so long. Their their bed rest is up, which is great. You know, we'll watch them for a few more hours and as uh, long as everything looks good and um, uh, they, they want to go home, uh, we'll let them go home the same day. Um, uh, you know, in certain situations, we'll keep people overnight uh, if there's any question. Um, as far as, you know, what to expect otherwise from recovery, uh, we're normally asking people not to lift anything, you know, above 25 pounds for a couple of days, two to three days. And uh, they're usually doing uh, follow-up with us in two to three weeks. That's great. So potentially life-saving procedure, quick discharge, um, AFib Awareness Month. Looks like we need quick and early intervention. Anything else to add, Dr. Smith? No, thanks so much for having me. Uh, um, 
I, you know, you kind of touched on it before. This is certainly my passion. And so over the years, it's been frustrating to, uh, uh, for there not to be, you know, the awareness where I had hoped it, there would be for atrial fibrillation. So it's very exciting to shed light on a, a much needed uh, problem. Wonderful. Thanks for sitting down with us today. Thank you. Well, that wraps up our conversation with Dr. Macy Smith of CVA regarding AFib. We hope that it was informative. I know I learned a thing or two and we want your feedback. If you have anything at all to tell us about any questions or any recommendations for future topics, reach out to us at education at cvapc.com. That's education at cvapc.com. You can also visit us on the World Wide web at cvapc.com, cvapc.com. This is the educational component of Cardiovascular Associates of the Southeast in Birmingham, Alabama. We look forward to connecting with you on a future episode. Hope everyone is staying safe. Thank you for joining us.